Welcome to Intelligent Machines and Medicine, conversations about artificial intelligence, machine learning, and healthcare. This podcast is brought to you by the AI Innovation and Enablement Team at the Mayo Clinic Center for Digital Health. I'm your host, Adria Hoffman, and I invite you to join us as we explore the innovative potential of AI in medicine and the big questions that guide our work. delighted that Dr. Momin Mullock joined us for this episode. Dr. Mullock holds an undergraduate degree in the history of science from Harvard University, a master's degree from the University of Oxford, and a PhD in societal computing from the Carnegie Mellon University School of Computer Science, where he focused on statistics and machine learning. Intrigued by the fundamental social processes that shape what we think about as scientific knowledge, he now works as a senior data science analyst focusing on AI ethics at Mayo Clinic. In this episode, he shares important lessons learned about the data we collect and how we measure something meaningfully. Welcome, Dr. Mullick. I am so excited that you joined us today to talk about your work. Thank you. I'm so curious. What did you find particularly compelling that first got you into this line of research? My interest throughout all of this was methodological. It was, can these methods really support the claims that people are making with them? I, you know, unsurprisingly, uh, found that no, absolutely not, but I was able to be much more specific in arguing where these things were breaking down, where these were failing. Because what has come to be known as machine learning, uh, what has come to be known as AI is based almost exclusively on underlying statistical models. That means that they suffer all of the limitations of some of those statistical ideas. Uh, The correlations that these things are based on will fail in all of the ways that correlations not being causes can fail. That wasn't immediately uh, relevant to ethics, or at least may not have seemed to be, until I realized that a lot of what people were taking to be genuine ethical dilemmas were really just methodological misunderstandings. Uh, Thinking that AI was discovering the underlying truth of the world, when in fact it was just picking up on surface correlations. Um, thinking that we have to worry about super intelligence, that we have to worry about robot rights, when this was all a very impressively constructed, but still ultimately a constructed statistical illusion, where these correlations are being used to give the illusion of intelligent behavior uh, in ways that can be very impressive, very entertaining, very productive and useful, but that still was ultimately a, a carefully curated use of correlations. So that led me to try to apply this to ethical areas. Are correlations sufficient to use uh, and not that these correlations are immutable or that they are capturing the the fundamental nature of the world? They're often very superficial based on proxies and they can be very fragile. They can change very quickly based on changes or shifts in the world. So if I'm understanding correctly, the questions that underlie potential ethical conundrums are, in fact, more about whether the tool we're using or the model that we're developing fits the intended purpose. Do I understand that accurately? Yes, I would say. 
in many cases, AI or machine learning is not able to deliver what people expect of it or want of it. What might be more appropriate is more traditional and less flashy statistical modeling. And there are places where not even statistical modeling can deliver. And maybe the fact that it's more well-worn means that people understand its limitations a bit better, but think that machine learning might transcend them somehow. In a lot of cases where we simply don't have good data, um, where the thing that we're studying is tremendously complex and subtle and hard to standardize, hard to characterize quantitatively, statistics also will not be useful. Then we need qualitative research, we need judgment, and we need other processes that AI and machine learning are just not well-suited to do. Which really speaks to our audience here, healthcare professionals, who know that those human qualities of empathy and compassion and care are uniquely Mm -hmm. human qualities. And so a human at the end of the day needs to be using the tool rather than thinking we're creating a tool that will replace the human. Yes. And I think the the important thing to see here is the first step in this entire process is quantification. The difficulties of that process, the ambiguities, the subtleties, and the inevitable subjective decisions that have to be made about what to quantify and what not to quantify, nothing in AI or ML will ever overcome that. But an individual human looking at the individual case can extract more insight from observing the world directly in a way that no quantitative system will ever be able to do. Uh, and that's that's important to keep in mind. So this is not just about valuing humans. It's about saying that there is one link in this whole chain that is flattening meanings, that is flattening out concepts in a way that we can't ever reverse later on, that only kind of human judgment, human observation, uh, can can it recognize the full richness of what might be going on in ways that might be hard to quantify. It might be hard to compare uh, a human to a machine and say which is better just because you don't even know what to quantify. And this is not to say that human judgment is uh, always good or always um, positive. Human judgment can also have biases, flaws, all of these things. But it's just to say that AI is not going to be free of any of those problems. It'll just have different problems and different ways in which it's good. It's not going to overcome those problems. Thank you for that explanation. I may return to that in a minute, but you know, one of the things that I find most interesting when I've heard you talk is when you provide the history of insurance and the questions that come up there. So I'm going to let you share that story again. Thank you. This is due to my colleague, Rodrigo Chigame. They were a PhD student at the time at MIT working on histories of AI, and they gave a presentation about this thing we hear about, algorithmic fairness. As they tell me, in the audience was a historian of insurance, Kaylee Horan, who pulled them aside and said, uh, we need to talk. As it turns out, Kaylee Horan is the author of a book called Insurance Age, where she details some of the social dilemmas, movements, controversies that took place around the rise of insurance, uh, especially in the United States. The story of insurance goes back uh, centuries. Originally, this was for insuring shipping vessels, and that's where 
I believe the idea of risk comes from or the word risk um, that, you know, not every ship made it to made it with its uh, cargo to its destination. And so insurance came up to try to uh, spread out the the risk or the idea that some ships would make it and some some ships wouldn't. Um, that eventually became applied to individuals. Uh, another historian of insurance, Dan Bauck, writes about this story from 1884, where a formerly enslaved uh, person who was a janitor by trade, but also an elected state senator in Massachusetts, Julius Chappelle, found out that life insurance companies were discriminating against Black people. They were not offering them life insurance or offering them uh, much higher rates. At the time, he proposed a bill to ban this practice. There were a bunch of lawyers and others, um, business people who opposed this practice, saying that uh, it's just a matter of business that Black people le live less long than white people. And this is not that we're racially biased. This is just an empirical fact that you can see from these casualty tables, these kind of estimates of life expectancy. And if you're going to interfere with the market, you're probably going to make it collapse and and make everything worse, cut off insurance entirely from the colored race, as one lawyer said. His allies in that case ultimately prevailed. Uh, they said that all of these statistics, while bleak enough, were, were addressing the wrong thing. None of them were addressing the potential for equality, uh, especially post-enslavement uh, under emancipation. What might life expectancies change to be like? And holding people responsible for these past patterns was in many ways foreclosing on the possibility of equality. That was a bill that at the time passed, uh, but the John Hancock Life Insurance Company was very spiteful. And even though it complied, it also had all of its agents stop soliciting uh, Black people for life insurance policies. So they kind of made good on their promise to, to cut off insurance from, uh, from Black people. That was 1884. A lot changed over the next coming decades. Um, deregulation in the 40s and the 50s in the U.S. led to the expansion of insurance into a lot of areas of life. Specifically, uh, investment was poured into emerging suburban communities where white flight was taking place to support businesses and growth and housing. At that time, there was housing discrimination as well. Uh, federal housing grants were only given to certain areas. But even before that, insurance companies were making these maps where they would draw these red lines of saying things in these areas are too risky. They're too high in insurance risk. That might have been empirically true, but it was empirically true because of compounding underinvestment and forcing you know, the poorest people, Black people, into certain areas and then depriving them of resources and growth. So it was this vicious cycle that these insurance companies were then optimizing to and therefore continuing. This, you know, got worse. There were uprisings in the 60s, uh, fomented most directly by police violence, but set against a backdrop of kind of complete lack of access to resources for setting up businesses, for, you know, having car insurance. The late, uh, later Justice uh, Thurgood Marshall, when he was still a lawyer, found he was denied car insurance coverage living in Harlem because of traffic congestion. And again, that might have been empirically true. It might have actually been because of that empirical fact and not just out of blatant discrimination. But the reason that there was traffic congestion related ultimately to racial discrimination, related to the way that certain areas were driven by policies to concentrate certain populations and then uh, denied investment in them. During uh, civil rights activism, 20 civil rights organizations came together. Now this is from Kaylee Horan's work. 
and said, we're going to boycott the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company because they are not offering Black people um, life insurance. And there was also a lot of movement to nationalize insurance companies. And this got the industry really spooked. They proposed this massive program to invest in um, supposedly inner city communities and make a big publicity splash about it. But the way they went about it, ultimately, they kind of, again, managed to to get around the activism or at least hold it off long enough for other forces to, to take over. They invested in factories and warehouses, mostly white owned. Uh, they invested in shopping centers at edges of town with mostly white ownership and employees. And then they invested in clinics, nursing homes that they could claim employed, you know, people of color, residents of the inner cities, but that largely were owned by and serving white populations. So all of this, you know, in um, 1967 and 68, I think billion dollars of investment in each year ultimately didn't really go to what people were were protesting. We're saying you have denied us the the opportunities for growth. Same time, Fair Housing Act passed that somewhat made the federal government cover areas they previously hadn't covered, but there were still a lot of overlapping forms of insurance that collectively made nobody want to insure anything. Fire insurance wasn't available. Um, And so people were claiming that it's a bad risk. We don't want to punish good risks by spreading out the risk to these bad areas. Forgoing the sense of collective outcomes or social responsibility in favor of just optimizing to the people who already had so much. This is the grand background. One specific thing that came out of this was the idea of actuarial fairness, where it's not a question of whether it's morally fair or not, but just an objective statistical measure of does this person have greater risk? Specifically, feminist campaigners, again, in the 60s and 70s, were trying to ban different sex insurance rates for health insurance, where women got charged much more because they, on average, had higher health care costs, which, you know, these activists said this risk should be spread out and borne equally by society because we're all in this together. Health insurance companies uh, came up with actuarial fairness, got it codified into law and kind of managed to distract the debate enough that um, bills proposed in the 80s were ultimately defeated. And we had, you know, not, no unisex insurance until much later, the passage of the Affordable Care Act, around which uh, there were still debates happening. You know, one re- Republican politician said, why should I have to pay for somebody else's birth control or somebody else's treatment for pregnancy or childbirth? Right. This insistence on I should only have to pay for what affects me, that there's no sense of how I benefit from other people, or I should bear some responsibility for that collective society that we're in. So this this continued for a long time. The connection made there between actuarial fairness and now its proposed algorithmic fairness is similar in trying to define fairness in an objective manner. The problem with that, um, the problem that comes up with machine learning and AI again, is that often what is objective, what is empirical, what is accurate, is past patterns of oppression, is the fact that those people who have been treated the worst, who have the least, often have bad outcomes. So if we just want to optimize to you know those who have good outcomes, if we just want to give resources to those who will be able to make the best use of those resources, it will further benefit those who already have resources, right? There needs to be a lot of investment um, and a lot of money that'll appear to be sunk before there's real benefit to certain investments that we'll see. 
there was an article, I think, by Nordling in 2019 talking about this for a healthcare, you know, AI system that was trying to determine who is a good candidate for discharge, a home discharge. And they found that zip code was highly correlated with where, you know, people discharge to, and that this was first surprising to the team who did this analysis. And second, um, Nordling wrote that this raised an ethical conundrum about whether this should be used, because on the one hand, it was efficient, but on the other hand, it would end up punishing black and brown patients. If we relate this to the history of insurance, well, absolutely, that's what we should expect. What insurance did, what AI does, is use correlations without necessarily worrying about the causal process behind it. Causality is really hard, maybe even impossible, but these weren't even attempts to reason through what the causal process might be or what the morality might be of that causal process. The most blatant example of this is probably in the late 80s or you know, discovered publicly in the early 90s, health insurance companies charging more for the victims of domestic abuse. University of Virginia law professor Deborah Hellman specifically talks about this case, that women, who, and it was specifically women who were the focus then, who were the victims of intimate partner violence, had higher healthcare costs. Even if they you know, made the decision to try to leave their abuser, that wouldn't affect their risk because that was the most dangerous time where people are most likely to be seriously injured or killed. So from the insurance company's perspective, it's just an empirical fact, right? There's, there's no morality that we should attach to it. We shouldn't punish other people for having to cover you know, these individuals, people's risk or circumstances. But of course, Deborah Hellman writes, this is morally uh, uh, horrible, right? That we're further punishing the victims of injustice and oppression and cruelty, right? That the, the empirical accuracy is totally besides the point. We as a society should spread out risk, should make sure that these people are not further victimized by systems like insurance. And that's the principle at play here again, that when we talk about data-driven decision-making, if what is empirical, if what is accurate, um, if what is quote-unquote objective is determined by the data that has been, it's going to capture oppression. It's going to pick up injustice and cruelty. And so if we optimize to that, we're potentially continuing these same patterns. Because AI kind of supercharges statistics, it's finding correlations in new high dimensional ways that statistics kind of never dare try to do. The danger is that it can get further and further away from any uh, grounded process of us tying specific responsibilities and behaviors to how we treat people and instead treating it in ways that we are further and further removed from that can end up picking up on these uh, correlates of oppression and then holding people individually responsible for them, especially when making decisions about how we treat people and allocate resources. Another great example of this is the Optum uh, healthcare system of trying to decide who to um, recommend for or default into certain healthcare programs for things like hypertension, diabetes, and so on. By using healthcare expenditure as the sort of target uh, that they were using to determine who should get into things, get into these programs, they ended up uh, inadvertently picking up on how Black patients have historically suffered underinvestment and medical racism, kind of in aggregate, uh, adding up in tiny amounts to have large aggregate patterns. And so this was meaning that equally sick white patients and Black patients would be treated very differently. 
very sick black patients would have to be way more sick than equivalently sick white patients to get into these programs or to be recommended for these programs. Again, because what the correlation there picked up on was a historical pattern of oppression. Um, making decisions based on this correlation just because it you know, appeared to correlate um, who was in these programs and who had high healthcare expenditures versus low healthcare expenditures ended up reifying these patterns. Similarly, whenever we're just looking in large data sets for these correlations, the patterns we find are going to be like those found by insurance. They're just going to be what correlates. And that can be uh, something that if we sit down and think about might be the result of a process that we absolutely don't want to reify, that we absolutely don't want to make use of, where we absolutely want to be inefficient in order to be more just and equitable. I think the reason why insurance is an excellent connection is because of this use of correlations, use of statistical modeling to identify the correlates or to characterize risk um, around negative outcomes. When you know that as you're talking, it it reminds me of of the history just of eugenics within the country. Although this was not the the first to point it out, perhaps the most well-known book that talked about this was Stephen Jay Gould's book, The Mismeasure of Man. Mm-hmm. And if you dive back into those early tests, and I use tests in quotation marks, of really human value, mm-hmm. what we find are a set of correlations, just like what you're discussing. Mm-hmm. You bring up a, a great point. This this sort of uh, callback in the nature of insurance to the origin of statistics. People will say, yes, statistics came out of eugenics, but the knowledge is not inherently eugenicist. The connection there is subtle. It's about characterizing populations in the aggregate. When this first came out, when this was first proposed, this was a very strange idea. Adolfo Ketlet, but he came up with this term, le mon hoyen, le homme moyen, yes, the average man, uh, which is a person and kind of an ideal person who's average in everything. People made fun of this, you know, a person who's average in stature and tastes and height and intelligence. This is a ridiculous uh, notion. And yet this is what eugenics appeal to, or they appeal to, you know, the upper end of the bell curve as making a normative ideal for what society should be modeled around or should be optimized to. And so then from that, the there were values embedded in what were, what things were calibrated on right, in order to determine um, who the norm should be. It wasn't always the average. Sometimes the norm would be the gentleman, right, or some other notion that I think here theory should always be used to determine what we value. I don't think the objective world can ever give us something reliable and meaningful. Uh, It was just that the values they employed were to value themselves above all else, right? So, oh, if a certain population is taller, then being taller is bad. If a certain population is better at calculation, then calculation is just rote practices and not true intelligence, right? So it was these calibrations that were driven by theory around making one population the norm and everything else aberrant. And of course, that's always necessary when you're trying to decide uh, how to calibrate your models, decide what you use to validate your measures. There's always some measure of the, the data themselves are never enough to say what the thing is. You always have to make decisions about what to value and what you're trying to achieve or optimize to. So that definitely comes around again 
um, maybe laundered a couple of decades away from eugenics, uh, away from the explicit racial ideology that drove the development of a lot of these ways of characterizing populations, uh, but they were still used um, in very similar ways to just say we care about optimizing to the average. Uh, whoever gets lost in that is not our concern or our moral responsibility because this is efficient, um, this is fair because it is objective, because it is empirical, because it is accurate. And so the same logic comes up in a different way because of the use of statistical methods in insurance. The specifics of that story, I think, uh, I hope will be worked out in historical work, but at least in the broad outline, I think there is uh, a subtle connection, but a strong one. Thank you so much for that explanation. That's really helpful. You know, I think you already just posed a couple of, of questions that may help us. For instance, pausing to ask, who is being valued? Hmm. And I'm curious if there are a couple of other guiding questions you might suggest keeping in mind. Hmm. Um, I think they're the very prosaic matters of who do we have data about? It's easy to say that, you know, the only people we can even consider valuing are those that we have data about. But in principle, we could change our practices, go out and collect data, open up new clinical sites, whatever it might be, or go elsewhere to focus on different populations. But in practice, let's say we've accepted the constraint that the population that we have access to is the population that is served, is, is the kind of the bounds. Within that, it's still very important to say, is this something that is being measured meaningfully? I have a colleague, uh, Karthik Dinikar, who does who has done work around how physicians interpret the same symptoms differently for men and women around atypical angina. But certainly there's a lot of research about how expressions of pain are, again, on average, in aggregate, treated differently between uh, Black people and non-Black people, between women and men, uh, and taken less seriously for for disadvantaged populations. So even the measurements, the, the data that are going into these things can include misdiagnosis, underdiagnosis, or just unfair interpretations for certain groups of people versus others. This is all of what's going into the data that then we can try to use for anything downstream, whether it's just descriptive statistics, whether it's statistical modeling, or whether we're trying to use machine learning to extract these non-obvious correlations in large data sets with automatic methods to find whatever correlates the most strongly. So if the data aren't good, then that precludes everything else. If there are biases in the measurement, um, even if something is supposedly a physical monitor, something objective, um, these need to be calibrated. I mean, uh, even temperature, inventing temperature by Hasak Chang, uh, something as uh, fundamentally physical as you know, energy is the motion of molecules measuring that, uh, turns out to be incredibly difficult and at some point subjective of just cross-referencing different measurement instruments with what we think theoretically is happening in order to decide what's signal and what is noise, uh, to decide what is the, the point at which we're comparing everything else to and how we set scales. So certainly something that's measuring blood oxygen level is going to have uh, subjective conditions or is going to be compared to some test that might connect differently if you're measuring through skin um, that is maybe mediated by the amount of melanin uh, between people of different populations. So even objective measurements, quote unquote, uh, can exhibit biases in how they're calibrated 
and on how well they measure people with different phenotypical traits. Um, of course, going back to who ends up being the subject of calibration and who is valued as you know being calibrated on. Uh, there's a really nice article on Vox, and there's a accompanying academic article uh, on Shirley. Shirley cards were what early photography used to calibrate the chemicals they used to develop film. Those vastly prioritized white skin showing up correctly uh, and made dark skin washed out. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it wasn't until chocolate companies started complaining that chocolate was not photographing well, did these companies go back and find out the right chemical mixture to make you know, dark shades come out in contrasting well. So all of these you know, objective measurements have so much subjectivity built into how they're calibrated and developed that they're by no means uh, free of bias or by no means um, something we shouldn't worry about. That's the first question. Where are the measurements? Where are the data coming from? I think that the part that is specific to machine learning and AI is, is this something for which correlations are sufficient? do we actually not care about whatever causal process might be happening? This is something that I think is hard to get used to because in a lot of cases, we take the face validity of a model based on our causal intuition. Oh, hey, this model is working because it's picking up on these five genes. Oh, of course, these five genes cause, you know, whatever it is that I'm looking at. That might not be the case. It might be that actually these are picking up on something that has a complex and very, very indirect causal pathway that the reason why you think the model is working is not at all why it's actually working. And so there's a danger there of if we use our causal intuition to guide us whether to accept or reject models, that's not really the right standard to use for models that are finding whatever correlates the most strongly. If we are okay using correlations, we should be okay with not necessarily understanding what the model is, is doing or what it's picking up on, how that relates to what we ultimately care about. If that is important, then machine learning is not the right tool because machine learning is going to pick up on non-causal correlations. That is its strength in being able to go in without preconceived notions of what might correlate the most highly and find things that do correlate. But if we want to really have a strong mechanistic link between the things we pick up on and whatever is going on, then again, machine learning is not the right tool for the job. We should be okay that in one hospital, one set of genes uh, is correlated with an outcome, and in another hospital, it's another set of genes. That should be okay if we really think that correlations alone are sufficient for the given case. And I think getting used to that will take some time, but that is what is needed to responsibly use machine learning, being okay with not just a backdoor to causality, but actually recognizing that in this case, for this purpose, maybe it doesn't matter what the causal relationship is. And even then, even if correlations might be okay, we should think, you know, what are we correlating with what? Um, genetic information? Well, do we have representative data about genetic information? Are certain populations volunteering their genetic data are certain populations genetic data treated with respect and care, or have they been treated that way historically in ways that builds trust over time or not? And so all of these questions will still come through this, but we really have to think about when correlations are okay. In many cases, they will not be, and that's okay. And in those cases, machine learning or AI is not the right tool. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. 
We wrap up every episode by asking our guests a few quick questions. My first question for you is what problem do you wish or hope that there would be a tool to solve? I wish there was a tool that could solve the wastefulness around supply chains. I don't think any tool could ever do that, but that's um, a major part of our world that I think is is extremely harmful and has all sorts of uh, terrible labor conditions all throughout, terrible harms to the environment all throughout that we never really think about or pay attention to and we have the luxury to ignore that. So um, having a tool that that addresses that, fixes that, um, hopefully the supply chain itself. But uh, yeah, I don't think that would be possible, but that's what I can imagine. We can dream big. Uh-huh. <laughs> we talk about trustworthiness in machine learning quite a bit. Thinking about people as opposed to machines, describe how you know you can really trust someone. A combination of having a sense of their inner process of reasoning and the values from which they are acting, um, and then having an experience of of behavior consistent with that to kind of back that up or to, to see what those values really are. Thank you so much. You've given us a lot to think about, and I've learned quite a bit talking to you. My pleasure. Thank you.